0: If we could, please, could we return in our Bibles to Matthew 19 as we pick up the text where we left off, and let me also bring to your attention that in the bulletin today there should be an insert. Uh, That insert we'll be referencing later. So for right now, Matthew 19, and that's on page 1134 in the Pew Bible. There is a group of people in the church who may feel overlooked, who may sometimes feel like they don't fit in. I'm referring to those who are single, to those who have never married. And it's not difficult to see how these feelings may have come to be. In the opening chapters of Genesis, God laid out his design for creation That design included two key components, the joining of Adam and Eve in marriage, and God's command for them to be fruitful and multiply. And so when we read about God's creation, it's easy to see how being married with children would come to be seen as the normal or ideal state. And so if being married with children is considered God's ideal, it is not hard to see how someone might think or feel that not having children or being married is less than ideal. And therefore, in the church, the unmarried and the childless may feel as if they don't Fully fit in. Today, Jesus will make clear that being married with children is not the only arrangement that's been established by God. Just as marriage is a gift, just as having children is a gift, so is singleness a gift of God. For those who are single, it may not always feel like a gift. But allow me to point out that being married or having children does not always feel like a gift either. (laughs) But the fact is, God blesses each of us in different ways as he sees fit, and why? For his glory. Every believer has a unique and important role in God's kingdom. Amen? All right. When we last left Jesus and his disciples, they were heading south. And they had just arrived in the region of Judea. And we know why Jesus has come to Judea. He is on his way to Jerusalem, where he will give his life for the forgiveness of sin. As they are traveling, Jesus is now focusing his attention primarily on the disciples although they have made great progress during their years of training, it's over two and a half years now, they still have a long way to go in terms of their understanding. Listen to this. The biggest challenge for the disciples is to set aside the ways of the world and increasingly adopt the ways of God's kingdom. Hmm. In many ways, the disciples are a product of the culture in which they were raised. Isn't that true today? The disciples were a product of the culture in which they were raised. Generation after generation of teachings by Israel's rabbis had caused the people of Israel to go off course. The people of Israel were no longer living according to the ways of God, but according to the traditions of man. The most recent example we can point to in the text occurred in just the previous scene when Jesus was speaking about the importance of forgiveness. Generations of rabbinical teaching resulted in the common cultural belief that the limit of forgiveness was three times. And so when Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter also suggested an answer to his own question. He said, up to seven times? And Peter thought he was being very generous seven times compared to the cultural norm of three. But then Jesus gave the kingdom standard, which he said was to forgive without limit. And the reason this is possible, Jesus illustrated with the use of a parable. He explained that if our debts have been forgiven by God, it is possible for us to forgive the comparatively small debt of those who have sinned against us. And as we observed last time, it is fitting that immediately after Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, the next section was about marriage, marriage because there is no place where forgiveness is needed more often than in marriage. Now, that teaching about marriage was sparked by a question that was asked by the Pharisees. And they asked this question not because they were interested in the subject, but they came to test Jesus. Remember that? They came to test Jesus. And so they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason. And you remember the NIV had an even more expansive uh, uh, rendering where it said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? You see, the rabbis had taught that a passage from the Mosaic law, specifically from Deuteronomy, had not only given them permission, but commanded the men of Israel to divorce their wives for the most trivial of reasons. Remember? For burning the toast. For a wife not wearing her hair properly. But we learned they were looking to the text not to discover God's ways, but to support their own wicked desires. The desires of their fallen hearts. Jesus responded to their question by looking to the scripture. He went to the book of Genesis to examine God's original design for marriage. And what Jesus concluded is that marriage was designed to be a permanent bond. A permanent bond. He said there was only one exception where a divorce could be legitimately sought, and that was for cases of sexual immorality. And because marriage was meant to be a permanent bond, Jesus declared what God has joined together, let no man separate. The disciples now have an observation for Jesus. So let's pick up the text where we left off and go to Matthew 19, verse 10. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The question says a great deal about the disciples. It shows how far they still have to go in their understanding about the ways of the kingdom. They are implying If it is the case that a man cannot divorce his wife for any and every reason, then it'd be better not to marry at all. You see, based on their comment, it appears that the disciples held the same view as the Pharisees. Didn't we say earlier that they are products of the culture in which they were raised? So they're thinking, well, I should be able to divorce my wife for any and every reason, and if I can't do that, I'm better off not marrying at all. Rather than risk being stuck in a marriage they can't escape, they've concluded that it would be better not to marry at all. Now, I think we can detect a hint of sarcasm in their comment. They might not have actually believed that a single and celibate lifestyle would have been the one to be preferred. They may have meant this as sort of an offhanded joke. You know, sometimes people will make when they're in an awkward position, they'll sort of make a light of something. But even if they were speaking facetiously and meant it as a sarcastic joke, Jesus is going to turn their comment around. Even if they meant it as a joke, Jesus is going to show that they have actually stumbled upon a point of very great wisdom. Jesus will agree that sometimes it is better not to marry. And this is true for two reasons. First, if a man or a woman enters a marriage with the selfish idea that they reserve the right to divorce their spouse for any and every reason, they are right. It would be better not to marry. Marriage was not designed to be an experimental, I'll give it a shot, but if it doesn't work out for me, I'm on my way proposition. But it is on the second reason that Jesus will focus his attention. Jesus will now go on to explain that for some, a life of unmarried celibacy is a viable and honorable option, especially for those who wish to serve Christ and his kingdom. If we look now at verse 11, Matthew 19, verse 11, we read this. But he said to them, to his disciples, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Let's pause here for a moment because we want to see here what we have before us is an introductory statement before Jesus is going to move into an extended metaphor. The metaphor will illustrate that unmarried celibacy is a way of life that is honored in God's kingdom. But before we look at the metaphor, we need to look more closely at this introductory statement because in it are three very important details that will help us to understand Jesus' meaning of this section uh, as a whole. At the beginning of verse 11 if we look there again, Jesus says, not everyone can accept this saying. To what specifically is Jesus referring to when he speaks of this saying? As in, not everyone can accept this saying. It is possible he's referring to the earlier teacher teaching about marriage, specifically that marriage was designed to be a permanent bond. Some will not want to accept the saying that marriage is a permanent bond. They will want to hold on to their right to believe that they are able to divorce their wives or their husbands for any and every reason. But it is more likely, and most scholars agree, is that the saying Jesus is referring to is what was just implied by the disciples. That for some, it might be better not to marry. Again, if that is the case, if it is the case that they believe they could divorce their wives for any reason, yes, it is better not to marry because of the damage that divorce will do. If you're going to enter a marriage experimentally, it is better not to marry. But that is not the main or primary reason to remain unmarried. It's not a good reason say, I'm not going to marry because I might be divorced. That's not the primary reason to avoid marriage is because you want to avoid divorce. Instead, in the upcoming metaphor, Jesus will demonstrate that some may choose to remain single not because they fear divorce, but because they love God. Some will forego marriage in order to better serve Christ and his kingdom. In verse 12, which we'll examine shortly, Jesus will speak of those who have chosen to remain unmarried, quote, for the sake of the kingdom. The second detail in this introductory uh, sentence is the concept of acceptance. Acceptance. Jesus says, not everyone can accept this saying. Ordinarily, we might not give any special consideration to this word accept, because the word accept is a word we use all the time. But we'll notice that in this short uh, section, the word acceptance is very important it's, it's used three times. To see what I'm saying, look uh, at the end of verse 12. At the very end of verse 12, Jesus says, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. You see, it's an important word used three times in these uh, just few verses. The Greek word translated for us as accept is koreo, The Greek word is koreo, and it literally means make room for, make room for. Let me suggest some imagery to help us understand the importance of this word. Let's imagine someone who has a room that is cluttered with old and tattered furniture. It is furniture which has been handed down from generation to generation. But now, this person has been gifted a brand new set of furniture. If they are going to be able to accept that furniture, they will have to make room for it. They will need to remove that old stuff that has been handed down to them in order to make room for the new. And to truly accept this new living arrangement they will need to accept living in that new space. To the disciples, in fact, most people hearing his words, the prospect of voluntarily, even intentionally, living life as a single person, that can be a difficult idea to accept. Largely because in our culture, The idea is handed down from generation to generation that the expected way of life, the normal way of life, is that you marry and have children. How many single people here have been asked by co-workers or asked by family, when are you going to marry and settle down? But as Jesus points out in this teaching, not only is remaining unmarried an acceptable alternative, it is an honorable one. And this would have been a radical concept for the 12 to accept. In this passage, Jesus is correcting the presumption that marriage and family is the only way of life and the only way that is honored by God. There is a God-honoring alternative, and simply stated, we have to make room for the idea, we have to accept the idea that it's okay to be single. In Jesus' day, and even today, it is sometimes the case among those who are married to think of those who are unmarried as incomplete, that they have not yet arrived in what society expects to be the normal experience. Society expects we, you grow up, you meet somebody, you're married, you have children, that's the normal experience. And if you don't have that, somehow you've missed what you were meant to do, that you are incomplete, incomplete that you have not yet arrived. And for those who are unmarried, it's not surprising that sometimes they can feel incomplete. For example, when there's a gathering and married people are talking about their spouse, it is nearly impossible for a single person not to feel left out. When married people speak about their children, it is nearly impossible for a single person not to feel left out. That's not to suggest that we shouldn't speak about these things, but we should be sensitive to that fact. What Jesus wants both unmarried and married people to understand is that not everyone is called to the same path. For some, Marriage will be part of their life experience, but for others it will not. And what is important for us to understand, based on Jesus' teaching, is this. It is not the case that one is better than the other. We are simply called to different paths. Here's the hard part. The hard part is accepting those paths. Marriage is hard work, as every any married person will tell you. But what is often overlooked by the Christian community is that being single is often is not is always hard work. Being single is hard work because it has severe challenges I don't need to enumerate those challenges of being single, but it is hard work. And that's why being single also requires God's help. How often do we pray for people's marriages that God would help them in their marriages? Quite often, I'd say. How often do we pray for single people that God would help them in their lives because of the challenges that they face? Let's look one more time at verse 11 as we take note of the third detail. Jesus says, all cannot accept this saying, but only to those to whom it has been given. The word given is the operative word here. The point is this, remaining unmarried and celibate is a spiritual gift. It has to be given. It has to be divinely given. In many ways, this is the most important statement in the passage. Remaining unmarried and celibate and doing so with acceptance of making room for it and living in it comfortably, as comfortably as one is able must be a gift that is given by God. And that is because singleness, as we said, has its own set of temptations and challenges. To live the unmarried and celibate life, that cannot be done by willpower. That cannot be done by human power. To live unmarried and celibate requires a spiritual gift, God needs to to gift to provide empowerment and enablement. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention here the terrible mistake that has been made by the Roman Catholic Church. Because of this passage we're looking at today and another passage that we will reference shortly, Catholic priests are required to take a vow of celibacy. But the problem with that requirement ought to be immediately obvious. Not everyone who enters the priesthood has been given by God the gift of celibacy. I suppose there are many men in the priesthood who enter the priesthood and are gifted in this way. But I would venture to say that many have entered the priesthood not because they are called by God into the pastorate, but because they are making a misguided attempt to escape their unnatural desires. I fear that many of these men, feeling desires of homosexuality and even pedophilia, thought they could deny those feelings by entering the priesthood. They thought that by taking a vow of celibacy, that would prevent them from acting on those desires. Recent reports have increasingly made it clear that priests are fathering children with both their parishioners and even with nuns. Why? Because these priests were not given the gift of celibacy. Therefore, they were unable to overcome their sexual desires, listen, by their own power. And when they acted on those desires, they've done great harm to themselves, to others, and to the name of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. It is better to marry than to burn with desire. Now that we've examined the introduction, let's go please to verse 12, where Jesus will give an extended metaphor about celibacy. Verse 12, we're at uh, Matthew 19, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. To illustrate the life of celibacy, Jesus employs the metaphor of the eunuch, and he, has, he lists three types. First, he mentions those who were born this way from their mother's womb. He's referring to the very rare case of those who were born without sexual organs. In the second category he mentions those who were made eunuchs by men. In the ancient world, when a male servant worked in the king's palace and worked in close proximity to the royal family, those men were made eunuchs. Their sexual organs were surgically altered to render them safe to be around the female members of the royal family. The best known example mentioned in the Bible is the Ethiopian eunuch who was converted to Christianity by the evangelist Philip. But it is the third type which is most important because Jesus will use this category to illustrate his point. In the third part of the verse, Jesus says, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. In this category, Jesus makes an an important and profound departure from the first two categories. Because in this category, he is not referring to someone who does not engage in sexual intercourse because they are unable, but because they choose not to. Notice the important inclusion of the words that show choice is involved. Look again at the text. It says, those who have made themselves eunuchs. But let's not forget this. While living, the unmarried and celibate life requires a choice. It will only be possible to live with that choice if one has been divinely gifted by God to live the celibate life. Right? So there is a choice involved, but that choice needs to be empowered by a divine gift that has been given by God. For the sake of clarity... When Jesus speaks of someone making themselves a eunuch, he is, of course, speaking metaphorically. You probably don't need to say this, but just to make it clear, he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking figuratively. He is not talking about somebody undergoing a surgical procedure. He's instead speaking about those, male or female, who have chosen to remain unmarried and remain celibate so that they can be of greater service to the kingdom of God. Jesus says, there are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Meaning, these people, instead of focusing on their marriage, they will focus their attention on serving God's kingdom now. Now think of it. Who is the ultimate example of this unmarried life and celibate life? I heard it, Jesus, of course. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of the unmarried and celibate life. He fully devoted himself to God's kingdom. Now, as a quick aside, and I'm speaking now to those who will attend the Bible study this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. I think it'll be a fascinating conversation for us to discuss why the unbelieving world is so preoccupied with conspiracy theories that suggest that Jesus was actually married. Right? Have you heard the theories that Jesus was married? He was married maybe to Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, or something like that. Why this preoccupation with trying to pin Jesus as married? Why can the world not accept the, the, the truth that Jesus was unmarried and celibate? That'll be for Wednesday night. Back to our text. Back to our text. Now, as we well know, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven... He's using a common and alternative method of referring to the kingdom of God. He's not talking about gaining points by remaining married so that you can gain points for the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And why is he talking about that? Because some will choose marriage, I mean choose, will to, choose to remain unmarried so that they can serve in the kingdom of God now. This concept is given expanded treatment by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. Let's consult the, the insert that is in today's bulletin. And uh, we're looking at an excerpt from 1 Corinthians. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. And I've opted to use the New American Standard Bible here. So let me read that text that's on your sheet there. Paul writes to the Corinthians, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, 35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, not to suggest that you should not marry, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure, listen, undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, so Paul makes this observation, and it's a pretty obvious observation, really. Being married requires time and devotion to one's spouse. If a man is to please his wife, that's going to require time. If a woman is going to please her husband, that's going to require time. As a result, Paul concludes, this will leave less time to devote oneself to the Lord. And so in this passage, along with the one we're studying today from Matthew 19, this is what caused the Roman church to compel its priests and its nuns to remain unmarried. But we obviously see the problem with this compelling somebody to remain unmarried. If they're not uh, spiritually gifted to remain celibate, it's a problem. Also allow me to point out that nowhere in Scripture does God command those who will serve him to be unmarried. As a point of fact, consider the New Testament figure Zechariah. He was the father of John the Baptist. While he was performing his priestly duties at the temple, he was visited by an angel of the Lord, and the angel said, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and he will be named John. And so the the priesthood was occupied by married men. But it was possible to remain unmarried, according to Jesus and to Paul, if one wanted to devote oneself more fully to the Lord. Married people can devote themselves to the Lord as well, There are so many married couples who uh, serve the Lord together. But to remain unmarried and celibate is an option that Paul says is a viable and honorable alternative that will honor God in his kingdom. And so the point is this. Choosing to devote oneself to serving the Lord The unmarried life may be preferable, but it's not mandatory. And it's so for one simple reason. Not everyone is spiritually gifted to remain celibate. Not every believer can live the single life. Now, there's one final point that should be made clear. When Christ and his apostle Paul Speak of men and women choosing not to marry so that they can devote themselves to serving Christ and his kingdom. This does not necessarily mean serving in an official capacity, like working at a church or going overseas as a missionary. All believers, men and women, are identified by scripture as a royal priesthood. Amen? All believers are a part of a royal priesthood, meaning if Christ is our king, no matter where we are, we are in his kingdom, and we are in his kingdom to serve him. And so no matter our spiritual status, we are to serve him with all our heart and all our strength, all while remembering that in Christ's kingdom, there is no single path to serving him. What Jesus wants both the unmarried and the married to understand is that everyone is called to a unique path. For some, marriage will be part of that life experience. For others, it will not. But what is most important for us to understand is that one is not better than the other. We are all called to different paths, and every path, married, or unmarried requires the gifting of God and God's grace. And we need to pray for one another and hold one another up. And so Jesus says to all his people, he was able to accept it, let him accept it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for each and every heart that you have brought to this place today. I pray that we would continue to serve you fully, no matter what our status might be in the kingdom, whether we are married or unmarried. And Lord, for those who are uh, struggling with their place in their marriage or their single life, we pray for them now. We pray that you would strengthen them, give them courage. Lord, help us to be the ambassadors of Christ that you mean us to be. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.